Welcome to Rovers Heroes, a series in which we look back at some of the great players and managers to have graced Blackburn Rovers Football Club. In this opening series, we consider the impact of Howard Kendall. This article was first posted on October 17, 2015. It can be found on the Blue Eyed Boy WordPress site, On the March with Howard's Army, by Jim Wilkinson. Part 1. The Beginning There are, and even I know this now, some feelings in life marginally better than being young and in love with your football team. Even when you know damn well that team is a good one, but you can follow the length and breadth of the land with better than even chance of success. But not many. And never were those feelings of love, pride, camaraderie and optimism burned onto my blue and white heart stronger than during Howard Kendall's brief but insanely successful reign as manager at Ewood Park. A promotion from the old Division 3 and a minuscule margin miss-out on making the top flight may seem small triumphs for those of you weaned on Uncle Jack and Kenny, Shearer and Cups and Titles. But believe me, for those who saw the famous old club slide into Division 3 for the second time in 1979, the following two years of revival and resurrection were heady and intoxicating times indeed. It saved Rovers from a slow decline into the very bowels of the Football League, a fate which soon befell all our stricken neighbours and daring us to dream. All that Kendall helped us achieve laid the firm and essential foundations for a decade and more of consolidation and more near misses, which were ultimately shaped into the form of a Premier League club, which was part of the story of the top table of English football for the best part of the next 20 years. We all know the story of how Kenny and Ray Harford were lured to Ewood by Rovers' greatest fan, but almost as significant and inspired was Bill Fox's decision, after missing out on the former Terrace idol Ali McLeod, to hire the Stoke City player coach, a teenage Preston North End star, whose glory playing days had been as part of Everton's title-winning Holy Trinity midfield of Kendall, Ball and Harvey. Howard's untimely passing at the weekend not only shocked and saddened my generation of Rover supporters, but also reminded us cruelly of our own brittle mortality. We who lived through those days of very heaven as youngsters are in late middle age now. Grandads and grandmas who have seen comrades and loved ones fall and who know we have less road left to travel than the one we've come down so far. None of us were particularly overcome with optimism for the roads or times ahead when Kendall was announced as the club's first ever player manager in July 1979. It was the month in which ACDC released Highway to Hell and a Chicago rock station held a ceremonial burning of disco singles. The Boomtown Rats, meanwhile, were number one here with I Don't Like Mondays. After going down under John Pickering and not actually looking forward to Monday's telegraphs for some time, it seemed more like we were on the road to nowhere, if not actually bound for Hades itself. And if there was any Saturday night fever about, it was usually to be found up the Cavendish, amongst those who hadn't spent their afternoon at Ewood. Bill Fox would have stressed to his new employee that he had next to nothing in terms of finance to play with. We all know the hackneyed but true stories about terraced house offices, second-class stamps, ten-bob bits in the metre and tea with no milk in. 
besides the acquisition of himself as a player, and few of us realised just what a good player he still was, he was able to add to a disparate bunch of old lags and young hopefuls who'd taken us down. Spending to the tune of £27,000 in his first weeks at the helm that summer. The bulk of that was splashed on a totally unknown quantity. Jim Arnold, a goalkeeper from Stoke's non-league neighbours Stafford Rangers, who would celebrate no less than his 29th birthday on the occasion of his Football League debut that August. The other 7,000, in those pre-YouTube, hell, even pre-VHS days, went on Stuart Parker, a Preston-born centre-forward that Kendall had never actually seen play, but an acquaintance of his suggested he'd been doing okay for Sparta Rotterdam after a few moderate years with the likes of Southend and Chesterfield. Parker scored a couple in a moderate pre-season Anglo-Scottish qualifying round of three local derbies against Blackpool, Preston and Burnley, all games drawn. My enduring memory of this series is a spectacular headed own goal that Ewood against the Clarets by Stuart Metcalf, whose place was probably most immediately threatened by his new boss's by now evident ability to still hack it on the field. Unusually, the season began as it was propitiously destined to end, with games away and then home to the same opposition. Neighbours Berry in the League Cup. It was two of the better players that Kendall had inherited who gave Rovers a 3-0 lead after the gig lane leg. Duncan McKenzie, an extravagantly gifted maverick forward, who had been Pickering's last throw of the dice for a club record fee, but who many doubted would share Kendall's obvious hard labore rather than fancy arte ethic, scored. Noel Brotherston, now well established and loved by the crowd, who warmed to his endeavour, skill and guts, scored the other two. Mackenzie further dispelled any Kendall doubts with two more in a less comfortable 3-2 home win in the second leg, whilst Kendall opened his Rovers account in front of 5,753 souls, curious enough for an early look at this new team. That itself was an improvement on the 4,684 who had bade the well-liked Pickering a touching Ewood farewell, defiantly chanting, When we all go down, we all go down together as the Doom side had recorded a final game win against Fulham. Many of those who sang in spirited unison that night would have their reward a year later, accompanied by lots more who Kendall had pied pipered back to support his unshakable cause. Not that the first weeks of the campaign gave any hint of the better times ahead. There is little doubt that Kendall, after one win in the opening ten games, albeit that one a remarkable 3-0 win at Hillsborough against strong promotion fancies Wednesday, would have struggled to keep his job under present-day scrutiny. Imagine, say, Venkis, who disposed of Berg and Appleton on the back of similar starts, and how they would have responded. But these were more patient, less knee-jerk times. Either that, or we and the board had become so dulled by failure and decline that no one really believed we could do much better. I can't say there weren't any grumbles and dissenting voices, nor letters to the Lancashire Evening Telegraph and Sports Pink even. But no way was the hysteria pitched and given free rein the way it is today. There wasn't even any such thing as a local radio phone-in. That isolated early triumph at Sheffield, after opening dull draws against Millwall and Carlisle, was followed by a rousing 1-1 draw at home to the European champions, Nottingham Forest, 
witnessed by a rare 20,000 plus throng. But any euphoria was spent after the first of many nil-nils and the Kendall. It would become a signature result, particularly second season, at home to Grimsby. Which was followed by a second leg 6-1 hammering at the city ground. I was island hopping round Greece for part of that time and shrugged my shoulders listening to a Motown compilation in a Santorini cafe on learning of a 1-0 defeat in a first ever league trip to Wimbledon's Plough Lane. A turgid home draw against Southend on my return was illuminated only by a clever Joe Craig goal, but Kendall was already finding that the likes of the Scottish Ace, as the L.E.T. titled him regularly, were inadequate even at this level. His hunch on Parker was also going largely unrewarded. Parker, escaping his marker, Mick McCarthy, scored for the only time in a draw at Barnsley, but that followed two horror results. A 3-0 home defeat by Rotherham, whose veteran Rodney Fern tore a makeshift fullback Tim Park into pieces, then a 2-1 reverse at Bloomfield Road, an embarrassing outcome from which a bullet candle header, his first goal in the league for us, was not enough to save us. Players such as Craig, Parker, local lads Metcalf, Paul Round and Brian Morley drab hangovers from the relegation season, such as Russell Coughlin, Martin Fowler and John Aston, were all found varying degrees of wanting in those first weeks, and for many, if the exit door wasn't shown, they were certainly on borrowed time as far as first-team football. Remember, it was just one sub on the bench in those days. Another who was trying Kendall's patience somewhat was the undoubtedly talented, but perhaps less than totally focused top scorer from the relegation season. Simon Garner had managed a respectable 8 from 20 starts in his debut season, but could probably have done with less of a lover of the bacchanalian pleasures for a partner than John Radford, the old Arsenal stager, who whilst playing out his career in the North, had developed a penchant for joining a retinue of former players and hangers-on who frequented the quiet public houses of Pleasington. It was said that Radford spent more time on their bowling greens than he did on the training field, and he probably wasn't sipping lime and soda as he whiled the hours away. Garner was thought to have also developed a liking for a drink or two, and like most Rovers players of the era, you would catch him out most Saturday evenings, perhaps puffing on an Embassy Regal with a vodka and coke on the go. When lowly Halifax Town came in with a modest bid, Kendall was inclined to wash his hands of his errant goal-getter, but between the two of them, it was decided that Garner would stay and attempt to show Kendall. Kendall had, for the first of only two occasions he was able to do so in his Ewood reign, given a debut to a youngster in that Rotherham game, and with Garner axed after rare selection for the Barnsley match, North East David Fairclough lookalike Kevin Stonehouse gave the beleaguered boss and highly concerned fans a significant boost with a double in a 2-1 win at Gillingham. These were trying times, and a lot of the older end of Rover support thought us thick as thieves like Weller's ghost punks and teenage terrorways, a bit wrong in the head for blindly keeping up our backing and travelling up and down on buses with buckets for toilets, only to be disappointed every other week. The bowed but happy bunch of troubadours from the Blackburn end on that Fulham game a few months previously hadn't abandoned all hope, but any fresh ones pinned on Stonehouse's brace soon dissolved in midweek as a sixth winless home game saw Carlisle leave Ewood as the third winning visitors in succession. Played 12, won 2, drawn 5, lost 5. 4-11, against 14, points 9. 
that was the record. Scoring Rovers' goal against Carlisle after making his debut that day at Priestfield was a young striker Kendall had picked up from Derby Reserves, having somehow persuaded Mr Fox to part with £50,000. Andy Crawford had notched a couple for the First Division Rams, but not been able to force a way into the side. I don't know, but I would guess he'd scored gazillions in schoolboy football, while not exactly endearing himself to anyone in particular. He wasn't really popular with his teammates from the off at Ewood. A bunch of us once bumped into him early, on one Saturday night on his own, in a Harrington jacket and jeans, clutching a pint in the Dambeat grapes. He declined an invite to join us on our escapades, and we surmised he'd something much more preferable lined up. Later that night, we saw a smartly dressed coterie of our heroes, bound for the town's only real flashbot. We went back into the grapes for last orders. Crawford was still there, looking for all the world like a bloke who'd come home to find his wife had cleared off with his best mate and emptied the joint account. He may not have known where the action was, but the net was a different matter entirely. Not the tallest, he could manoeuvre his disproportionate backside around to shield the ball until he saw an opening to have a go at goal himself. Laying it off to a colleague or having for fend pass to a colleague better place to score was a total no-no, but my word, Kendall had seen something in him. A slightly better run of four wins and a draw from seven games, all the wins at home while the draw was at Sealand Road, where embryonic goal machine Ian Rush was making one of his few Chester City appearances, brought some sucker. Crawford began to find the net with some regularity. One of those home games saw the introduction of another unheralded by, who was to prove the final piece in a jigsaw that Kendall had been looking to assemble since the off. Jim Brannigan was no one's idea of a hero, a journeyman fullback whose dad had played for Manchester City, but whose own footballing travels had only touched glamour insofar as he'd tried his luck in Cape Town once, before returning to ply his trade beneath the more prosaic hilly environs of Huddersfield. With Mick Rathbone injured, Brannigan had a variety of partners in his opening dozen or so outings which brought mixed results, with the pleasing rider that the Rovers were actually tightening up at the back. In the second batch of 12 games, only seven goals were conceded, despite defeats at places like Swindon, Millwall and Brentford, where an attack in which Craig was partnered with Crawford failed to register. Crawford continued his goal habit with a couple in the early round banana skin ties over non-league sides. Peter White had to nip across the road from Kidderminster's ground periodically and phone his runner through from a toffee shop. And Glenn Keeley, a player who was to improve greatly under Kendall, which ironically led ultimately to his most humiliating footballing experience, but that's another story in another club, was also finding the net. A headed winner at Boothbury Park, ending a poor away sequence on a freezing Friday night before Christmas. A waterlogged Boxing Day Ewood stalemate against Mansfield, no way it would have started today, was followed through by a 2-1 defeat at Bramall Lane in the first hours of the 1980s. But while the holiday season had been unproductive, Kendall's elusive jigsaw finally seemed to fit together. Garner, only given two starts by Kendall, was recalled for the swampy Mansfield Boarfest and didn't miss another minute of the campaign. In the dying minutes in Sheffield, Basil Rathbone, out since October, took the field of sub for Metcalf, and thus began a back-four combination which was to serve Kendall and his successor Bobby Saxton with such distinction 
that I think I'm safe in saying you'll never see a Rover's defence as parsimonious if you live to the year 2080. With Arnold proving a complete snip at 20 grand, and Kendall probably as good a player the third tier has ever seen, the magical alliance of Brannigan, Keeley, Fazakley, Rathbone was in place for League and Cup exploits, which remain high in the echelons of Ewood folklore, even to this day. Played 25, won 8, drawn 8, lost 9. Rovers were now 14th in the Division 3 table, as New Year's Day 1980 drew to a close. It was a slight improvement on the ignominious 21st relegation spot that they had occupied after 15 matches in late October. But magic was about to happen. Which, for all my sorrow at Howard's passing, warms my heart at the very recall of it. The story continues in part two.